I want to try something one more time. He is risen. He is risen okay, try again. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Let's pray to our risen King. Oh God, we are thankful that you have shined your light into the darkness of this world, into the dark tomb of our lives, and brought life out of it because of the life death, and resurrection of our King. It's in His name that we have life. It's in His name that we have victory. It's in His name, God, that we pray now that You would resurrect even more of our lives as we long for the day when our bodies are made new. Resurrect our hearts in this moment by the power of Your Word for His glory and in His name. Amen. When you've lived long enough in this beautifully broken world, there'll probably come a time or you can recall moments when you've looked around you and you wondered, what in the world went wrong? When you're young and idealistic, quite ignorant of how far the curse extends into the world, you've got grand ideas for what your life is going to look like. Get married, have kids, live in a nice house. Get the job that doing the thing that you always love doing. Maybe go on a few vacations. Have some friends to enjoy life along the way. You'll probably do a few important things, helpful things also. Help a neighbor in need. Maybe adopt a shelter animal. Cure cancer. Solve world hunger. Achieve world peace. You know, just a few little things that would make your life satisfying. And then you turn 30 years old and you're still unmarried. And the job you spent the last eight years training for is not quite as satisfying as you thought it would be. Or you're 60 years old and you're raising your grandchildren realizing you're never going to have a retirement. Addiction took away half your life. Divorce destroyed your family. You have to close down your business. Chronic illness prevents you from enjoying just the most minor pleasures in this life. Or an abuser took advantage of your vulnerability. The world is dark all around you. You feel like you're living in a tomb. Everything you've ever dreamed of just feels like a distant memory. And you're left empty. Where did it all go wrong? Is this really the life that I'm stuck living? All that there is for me? I don't want to sound too gloom this morning, but every single one of you will at some point in your life, if you have not already, run into this range of negative human emotions where you wonder, what went wrong? Nothing is satisfying my heart. Or maybe you wonder if these desires in my heart are just some kind of cosmic joke that God gives me all these desires and He'll never give me the satisfaction of them. Where is He? When these doubts creep in, my friends, don't despair. When grief overcomes you, the loss of something so meaningful to you, don't give up. When fear drives you to flee, stop. Take a big breath and look and see the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. God is still alive. 
This is the day that we are going to linger a little bit longer on this beautiful truth. The most important event in all of history. This is the day that promises that every single one of your lives can be remade into something far more than any eye has seen, ear has heard, or heart has imagined. This is the day that the miracle of the resurrection transforms every despairing reality into the promise of lasting satisfaction for your heart. It's the proof that God is not dead and He is still working to redeem all things. So no matter where you're at today in your circumstances, in all of the grief and doubt and fear that this world brings with it, see and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See and believe that you were made for so much more. And the resurrection is the beginning of a new creation in you. A transformed existence where doubt becomes certainty. Grief becomes joy. Fear becomes faith. See and believe, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our emphasis today from the text that Justin read for us. John chapter 20. There we will see how Jesus accomplished resurrection Himself. And then we're going to back up through the Scriptures a little bit and look how resurrection was promised even to us. But before we examine the empty tomb in John 20, just think a little bit about the mood in Jerusalem on this historic Sunday morning. The 11 disciples that remain are filled with fear, dread, maybe you could say. They spent three years of their lives following a doomed revolutionary who was just arrested and killed, condemned for this. And here they are in hiding, wondering if they're next for following along, being part of this movement. The women who followed him are filled with grief. The only one who ever loved him so deeply, whom they adored so much, is suddenly gone. The establishment, the rulers in Israel, holding their breath, wondering if maybe they've instigated an uprising, tentatively holding on to their weak authority. All of Israel is feeling incredible despair, occupied by the Romans for so many years in their one little flicker of hope quickly extinguished. Extinguished. The tension in the air is so thick. There is distrust with every conversation you have. When you're despairing like this, it's hard to even imagine what the next few hours look like. If someone asks you for help, you're like, I don't even know what I need. You don't know what the next day will bring. All you know is that tomorrow probably will not be filled with any joy. And it's in this cloud of darkness that Mary shuffles her feet to the tomb. Read with me, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the body. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. Imagine the weight that Mary is carrying with her. 
She was a woman who had sinned much. Yet Jesus is the only man who ever looked her in the eye and treated her like a human, a real person. He loved her. He deeply cared for her well-being. He defended her when others mocked her for her past life. He laid before her a vision of godly womanhood that inspired her to lay behind, send back that shameful, painful past and press on to sin no more. And now, now he's gone. It's like an old man who returns to the grave of his wife who died ten years ago just to speak with her. Mary goes back to the tomb trying to regain some of that hope. Maybe by being in the presence of his dead body. Even that pitiful grasp for pleasure is taken away from her as she approaches the tomb and realizes everything has changed. The soldiers that were there guarding the tomb are all gone. The seal on the tomb guaranteeing that if anyone touched it, they will be severely punished, ripped away. The giant 2,000 pound stone rolled to the side and there as she looks inside, it is empty. The tomb is empty. What happened? What's going on? Despite all the teaching that Jesus did, predicting what was to come, despite what all the scriptures had told them would happen, despite even Jesus' example of raising people from the dead, it never once crossed her mind. Maybe he's alive again. This is where we are in our darkness and fear, in our own pain. We interpret everything through the lens of fear, of our grief. We imagine the worst possible scenarios and assume that's what our life is. We wonder what God's doing. Is this some cruel joke? What disgusting disrespect, wicked selfishness that you would... Steal a body, denigrating the deceased and mocking his followers. So in panic, she runs to the only people left to trust, Peter and John. Tells them the news. And Peter and John think maybe she's a little bit emotional or interpreting this all through the grief. So they run to the tomb to verify. If they're going to get to the bottom of this and present a case, they're going to need two male witnesses, according to the law. So they run to get to, to investigate. Go back to verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. That's John. That's the writer of the gospel. That's his humble way of trying not to brag that he was the one who wrote himself as the first in, to the tomb. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. So the scene is just as Mary had described it. Her testimony may not be admissible in court, but she's no emotional fool. Her testimony was perfectly accurate. The stone was rolled away. 
It seems like some strong man had shown up and deposed the entire guard that was left there, ripped off the seal, moved that massive stone, jumped in, thrown the body over his shoulder, and ran away. Somebody robbed the grave. That's the only possible explanation. But even that didn't make much sense, considering all that had been done to prevent that very thing from happening. The stone, the seal, the guards. There was such a heightened awareness, a distrust of everybody in Jerusalem. And nobody in authority could afford to let this Jesus guy have any more influence, either alive or dead. But there it is, the empty tomb. This just isn't making sense. Who could have stolen the body? The disciples wonder, maybe the Jews or the Roman guards did it. But then we see in another scene that the Jews are blaming the disciples for doing it, for stealing the body. Who robbed the grave? The disciples stopped at the entrance, their hearts pumping full of adrenaline. Maybe the thief was still in there. Or what if their great fears are just confirmed and rubbed in their faces that this was a big three-year waste of their lives and God really isn't working to restore the world. But as they enter, notice what they see. The burial cloth, wrapped multiple times around Jesus tightly and tied together, are laying right where His body was. And the face cloth that was around His head, taken off, folded nicely and set gently down. How how strange. If someone was stealing a body and their life was at risk, why would they go through all that trouble? You fight off all these soldiers. You move that stone. Any minute more soldiers could arrive. You could be arrested, tried, killed. So you quickly get in there and then you slowly take your time. Unwrap the body. Fold it up nicely. Put it over here. That doesn't make any sense. Until suddenly it did. Look at verse 8. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What is it that he believed? In an instant, it all made sense. This is the part of the movie where there's these flashback montages. It goes all the way back to the beginning, uh, putting clips together of the previous scenes, weaving the thread, showing the thread that's been woven throughout the entire movie that culminates in this climactic moment. It suddenly makes sense. John realized what happened. The light bulb turned on. The last piece of the puzzle fit into place. He saw and believed. We're not even told yet what happened. The other Gospels are more explicit in telling what happened. Some angels show up and explain. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. He's alive. The other Gospels are trying to put together a more historical, evidence-based document. They want you to know this is exactly what happened. This is proof. John wants to tell us something a little different. He wants us to feel something in this moment. The 
the resurrection is more than just some list of events that happened that you can log away in your encyclopedic biblical theology. John wants you to feel how the resurrection breaks into your human experience. Something otherworldly just transformed their lives. The disciples' fear turned to faith. And then in the next section, Mary's grief lifted into joy. And then you go on and see Thomas's doubt turned to faith. To, excuse me, turned to certainty. Despair turns to hope. Confusion turns to clarity. Emptiness suddenly filled with eternal purpose. It's just hardly an ordinary way to explain what happened in that moment. And so we write and sing songs like the one we just finished where we say, our God robbed the grave. What a foolish thing to say, but that's where we are. The disciples wondering if the Jews stole the body. The Jews blaming the disciples for robbing the grave. And in this moment of human emotion, John says, God did it. God did it. Of course, he's not a thief. That would be absolutely contrary to God's nature. But the resurrection came in the midst of these inflamed and conflicted emotions. Confusion reigned until the resurrection broke in and hit John right squarely in the face. God did it. The Spirit of God entered into the tomb, revived the body of the King, and broke him out of that grave. It wasn't a robbery at all. It was a prison break. No sentence of the Jews. No condemnation of the Romans. No stone tomb can hold back the body of the Son of God. God did it. He is alive. He is risen. Jesus conquered death and He accomplished the resurrected life. This is the beginning of something extraordinary, friends. Something altogether unexpected. But it should have been expected. Look at verse 9. As yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. See, if they knew their Bibles well at all, they should have expected this. If they listened to Jesus at all when He was alive, they should have known. Jesus said way back in John chapter 5, verse 39, the whole Old Testament, all of the Scriptures are about Me, guys. They give you clarity on everything I'm doing, and I will do. But it wasn't clear to the disciples until it actually happened. Well, what is it that they missed that we should understand? Let's go back a little bit into some important parts of the Old Testament and find out where this resurrection was promised. might just want to have a pen ready as we go through these because it's everywhere. You don't have to dig too far, actually. Find some obscure text. You can just turn right to the first page. Genesis 1.1. I'm kidding, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. So it was a dark, purposeless existence. It was like a tomb with no life in it. And then the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The Spirit entered that tomb-like existence to bring life. 
And God said, let there be light. And there it was. There was light. God spoke into the darkness and filled it with light. That's why John loves this dark and light theme when he teaches about Jesus, because he's going all the way back to the beginning. And does anyone remember on which day of creation this all took place? And there was evening and there was morning. The first day. In John chapter 20, verse 1, on which day of the week did Mary visit the tomb? It was the first day. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. He's starting things all over again in Himself. And if you are in Him, you are a new creation. Behold, old things have passed and all things are made new. Quite interesting, but maybe you're not quite convinced yet. So let's move on. Where else can we see this hope of resurrection? We'll just turn the page to Genesis chapter 2. Adam and Eve were made to be real, physical, embodied, earthly people who dig in the dirt, real dirt, have more children, cultivate the land, have dominion over everything. They didn't know what death was until death rudely interrupted their lives. Darkness filled the whole world again in Genesis 3 when they rejected God's life-giving boundaries. They were filled again with all the same emotions we feel. Grief, fear, doubt. But God made some promises. In verse 15, one of the woman's sons is going to crush the head of the serpent. This little hint that one day, maybe far off in the future, death would be destroyed and life would be restored. But what kind of promise is it to them if they just remain dead for a long time? They knew that this meant life was coming again. So Adam names his wife Eve in verse 20. The Hebrew word for life. She's the mother of all living. They knew their sin deserved death. But one day God would destroy it and restore them to life forever. Maybe not convinced yet. Some blank stares. Okay, let's keep going. How about Genesis 17.7 where God makes a covenant with Abraham? God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. So God's saying, I'm going to be in a relationship with you, Abraham, and your sons for eternity. What a promise. And then Abraham died. Did God break his promise? Or is he going to bring Abraham back to life? Remember a couple weeks ago, that's the argument Jesus was making when he quoted to the the, uh, Sadducees. Exodus chapter 3, quoted God talking to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. We have all these promises from the Scriptures that God is going to live in a relationship with us forever. He will destroy death. Abraham knew this then in Genesis 22 when he went to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. You ever wonder why Abraham seemed to be rather okay with it? I mean, he was a little distraught, but he didn't fight it tooth and nail like I would have. It's because he knew it would only be temporary. Hebrews 11 tells us he trusted that God was going to raise his son from the dead because he promised to live with him and his son forever. 
Resurrection is all over the Old Testament in that sense. Think of Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, picturing Israel coming out of the dead back to life. How about just a few more verses? Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Or I love the beautiful song in Psalm 71, verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. The ancient Israelites knew that God's promises were for an eternal, physical, earthly life that demanded they would be raised from the dead. But all of this seems to talk about resurrection in general. What about for the Messiah himself? Well, think back even just two days. Jake's message for us on Good Friday from Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all like a lamb led to the slaughter. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. But then look closer at how verse 10 in Isaiah 53 ends. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, after he's done these things, He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. The Messiah is going to die for the sins of his people. And after he does that, he will see his people. His days will be prolonged. He will accomplish the will of God in his own life. It doesn't exactly say here in Isaiah that Jesus is the name of the Messiah and he'll be raised from the dead. But that's basically what Isaiah is telling us. And now Peter, after he enters the tomb, he sees it finally. He understands. And so in his Acts 2 Pentecost sermon, he's grabbing scriptures that nobody thought of. Like Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This song from David crying out, trusting that even if his enemies defeat him, he will rise one day. But then Peter says this is about Jesus. It's a little unclear. Is it about David or Jesus? But it's intentionally left that way because we should see our resurrection in Jesus' resurrection. Last one that makes it most clear, Hosea 6.2. Hosea is proclaiming judgment upon Israel. Saying, you have disobeyed and deserve destruction, Israel. But if you repent and come back, he will restore you. He writes, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Who was raised on the third day? We or Jesus? Yes. The answer is both. The promise in Hosea was that we would be raised, but the prophecy points to both because in Christ, all the promises of God are fulfilled. In Him, we accomplish our promised redemption, resurrection. This is what the disciples should have known 
as they read the scriptures. The scriptures are all the proof we ever need. Incredible. Thousands of years between writing. Dozens of different authors from different walks of life. Different parts of the globe. They didn't work together, but all of it fits together to tell the one consistent story that God is restoring the entire world through His promised Redeemer. Yeah, there's wonderful proofs that we can look at. And if you get involved in apologetics, you can look at things like extra-biblical documents which speak of this growing thing called a church that follows a crucified leader who they claim is alive. Or maybe you wonder, maybe, maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross and he convinced his, he escaped from the tomb and convinced his followers he's still alive and he defeated death. But that doesn't make any sense because of our historical understanding of Roman crucifixion. These guys were brutal, professional executioners. They knew how to make sure someone was dead before they took him off a cross. Or really, maybe the disciples made it up, right? Well, why would they do that? What did they have to gain? And why would they go to their brutal, gruesome, painful deaths themselves for a lie when they could get out of the suffering by just saying, yeah, you're right. Hundreds of people, not one of them, confessed. They wouldn't. They didn't. Because in that moment of fear, doubt, and grief, the resurrection broke into the pitiful human existence and suddenly made the eternal plan of God clear from Genesis 1 through the Gospels to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All the promises became clear to them. God is making all things new through Jesus. And His resurrection is the first fruits, the down payment, the seal of the promised work that will happen in us, happening today in the church and is guaranteed one day when we receive our new bodies. That's the core of the apostles' message. They were transformed by what they saw and they had to write it down and proclaim it to the world. So they say in Acts 4.20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We have to. We are compelled. So John, the same guy who wrote this gospel, writes in his first letter at the beginning, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Peter, the first one to go into the tomb, writes in his second letter, We did not follow cleverly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Peter and John didn't understand until they saw and touched Him. We don't get to see and touch Him yet. But they wrote it down for us. And they went to their deaths defending their story, confident in their own resurrection, in order that we who would follow would also believe. So just shortly after our text in verse 29, Jesus tells Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. They got to see and give their lives for this message. And that's why John wrote his gospel, his account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He writes in verse 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you, you may have life in His name. 
You may have the same life He has, the resurrected life. This is the foundational hope, the truth of every Christian's life. It's our only hope. Not marriage, not children, not a good job or a successful business, not retirement or vacations. Our meager existence in this world with all the pain and fear and doubt are being transformed by the resurrection of Jesus. He guarantees that we will rise just like He did. It's the foundation of our hope. It's the truth that helps us endure every painful moment of this life until the day we finally achieve our resurrection. That's why we started worship with the quote from 1 Corinthians 15. We are to be most pitied if the resurrection didn't happen because that's the only thing we hold on to to satisfy our hearts. Now the church today lives with this hope. We serve one another. We love one another. We meet with each other throughout the week and eat food together. We deny ourselves. We set aside every earthly pursuit, trusting that in the world to come, we will have a greater satisfaction. Those who believe have that promise of eternal life in His name. Where your sins are crucified on that cross, buried in that tomb, never to emerge again, and your soul and eventually your body rise with Him out of that grave. It's all yours if you repent, see, believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't, friends, Daniel warned us, you will be resurrected. Resurrected to eternal contempt everlasting destruction, yes, raised to be given a new body that will never die and always suffer. Don't let that be you. Hear this plea today, the promise today. Repent, see and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, you have lots of questions about how it all works and you got to hang out with all these weird people for the rest of your life here and for the rest of eternity. It'll make more sense later. Yes, there's all kinds of apparent contradictions or far-fetched stories in the Bible. All of it will make sense. There's answers to those questions when you first surrender to the risen King. If Jesus rose from the dead, if that is historically accurate, if it really happened, then He can part seas, rain down fire, make axe heads float, heal lepers, bring people back from the dead, topple walls of large cities. It all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Your purpose, your life satisfaction is dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus. So wherever you're at in your journey through life today, God, in His sovereignty, has brought you right here, today, to stop and look at the tomb. Stoop down low. And look inside, in humility, and see that the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Our God is not dead. God didn't even rob the tomb. God did not change His mind about the wickedness of your sin, but in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, He has accomplished 
for you a resurrection life. See and believe with me in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you have conquered the grave, not just for your own son, but all who put their faith in him, we will be raised with him. We are we are baptized into his death and baptized into his resurrection. We cling to his coattails. We depend on him for everything. And so, God, would you raise our souls now to sing to you the praise that you are due. May Jesus be the hope of the rest of this day, the rest of this week, the rest of our lives and for all eternity. Give us confidence and may we be a witness to this truth with our words and with our actions. In his name we pray. Amen.